Okay, so having lived an authentic Christian life before them, pray for them for an opportunity to share. And uh, again, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a high-powered kind of evangelist person. Maybe some of you are. But for most of us, we want to win the right to be heard. And we can do that by, by living an authentic life. We need to relate to them naturally, personally, winsomely. We don't have to put on our Christianity. We don't have to come across as religious. We just we just need to be um, a Jim and Jane Christian that are real. And yeah, we don't always we don't always live the perfect life, and some of the choices we make and the things we do, someone might say, "Well, would a Christian do that or say that?" Okay, we're going to blow that. Well, Ken, I think we need to also say something. Not everything. If something, someone else will say something else. Yes. We need to say something. So we need to have input. We want to be able to witness, to say something in behalf of Christ. So ask them for the privilege. And this, uh, this is probably one of the better pieces of advice that I think we can use today. Ask people for the privilege to talk to them about our faith. Um, because in previous decades, the Christian church has been very forceful. And we've decided we're going to tell them whether they want to hear or not. And most people uh, do not listen in those scenarios. And I'm not saying we can't knock on doors and we cannot, uh, you know, go out and try and engage people. Uh, in, in a previous church where I was serving, Sam and I and some of the other people from our church would go to the park. We would intentionally go out and try and engage people in conversation. I don't do that well. I, I'm okay doing it, but it's not my favorite thing to do, but I'll do it. But we, we need to ask. Okay, so you're enjoying a nice Sunday afternoon at the park. Do you have a couple of moments? Because we're out here talking to people, sharing something about our faith in Christ. They say, well, thank you, but that doesn't compute in my, uh, in, in my mind in terms of how to have a nice Sunday afternoon at the park. Okay, well, fine. So, so maybe we won't, we won't talk to that person. Uh, Brian? One of the best ways, I think, person with us, you talk about theology, you talk about gospel, and the person may or may not fight back and give you arguments and back and forth. But the one thing you can do is tell them what Christ has done in your life for you. They can't argue about that, you know. Exactly. So if given the opportunity, rely on the Holy Spirit, <coughs> focus on the gospel as you share your testimony. How has Christ made a difference in your life? And they may not buy your story, but they can't argue with your story. It's your story. This, hopefully, these steps will lower the walls 
of, of defense that people have built up. Gail? Um, the opportunities that I've had to share the gospel <coughs> with strangers or with others, the Holy Spirit has nudged me to do so. Yes. And I think when you get that nudging, that door is going to be open. Yeah. But just to walk up to strangers, I, I don't feel that Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable doing that because I don't feel that unless the Holy Spirit has told me right, that they're they look in me or something is there. But 100% of the time, when the Holy Spirit has nudged me, they've wanted to hear. So I just think that's an important key. Thank you. <coughs> okay, let's go back to Revelation 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So as you can see, John is serving here both as recipient and as messenger of this revelation that's being given to him. He wrote uh, to the seven specific churches which were located in the Roman province of Asia, uh, um, modern-day Western Turkey. These were not all of the churches in Asia. Uh, and as one of the commentators uh, astutely points out, Colossae was, was not included. And Colossae was definitely a church in the first century. You know, Paul writes to the church at Colossae. So, we know that there had to be more churches than these seven, but he did write to these specific seven. Well, Ken, yes. on Wednesday night, Rome Dyke is <coughs> teaching us about the uh, uh, geography and uh, what Paul was doing. Mm -hmm. And could it be said that these were the churches that Paul went to on his first missionary journey? Uh, would, wouldn't it have been, would it not have included not churches. not on the first journey. The first journey stayed more in the western or in, in the eastern part of Asia Minor. Yeah. So it would have been the second and or the third uh, journeys. Um, when Paul had his three-year ministry at Ephesus, and various people were serving assistance to Paul, uh, those assistants likely started some of these churches. Um, Paul didn't get to all of these places. But he had a, a, a very profitable ministry there. So it, 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 it was kind of a springboard from Ephesus to these other places, I think. Um, we are not told how or why these particular churches were selected. And the people in these churches were uh, the target audiences of this revelation, though. Uh, the revelation of Christ was the needed word of God for the people in these churches, whether to rebuke and correct or to encourage, sustain, and embolden. So, uh, and there, are, there is great speculation in terms of, okay, so these seven churches um, best represent the larger church of Christ and the messages that they were given are useful for the church anywhere and everywhere. Exactly they are, 
Could there have been an eighth or a ninth? Yes. Or could there have been a different seven? Yeah, probably. But the Holy Spirit and um, uh, God the Father decided that these seven were the, were the appropriate target churches. And the messages that they gave to these particular seven churches would be useful for all time. Okay, so the greeting from John contains a pronouncement of grace and peace from the triune God. And we people need grace and peace from God, don't we? Uh, Interestingly, in the scriptures, there are only a few places that refer to the three persons of the Trinity uh, as God. There are places that refer to the triad of the persons, um, and there are places, of course, that address one or two of the of the three. Uh, this is one of those places where we have the three together, and they are given uh, interesting and distinctive uh, descriptions, aren't they? So notice, from him who is and who was and who is to come. So, so what kind of a description is that? Yes, he's eternal. Uh, For God, he's outside of time. He's created time. He enters into time, but he's not bound by time. He, He is, he was, and he is to come. Hmm. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne... So the Father is featured as beyond time constraints. The Spirit is perfect if we understand uh, the connotation of the number seven. You say, that is really strange for the Holy Spirit to be addressed as seven spirits. It is. Ah, That's different, isn't it? So what is is, uh, being communicated to us by that? Well, probably that he's a very perfect and complete spirit. And what the spirit does is perfect and complete, as well as holy and sanctified. This version says the sevenfold spirit. The sevenfold spirit. The sevenfold spirit, okay. version says. Yes. Interesting. Matt? Do you think the church of represent, uh, church ages? I'm, I'm sorry, try that again. Do you think the seven churches represent seven different church ages? No, I don't. Um, I think that probably we can find examples of these kinds of churches throughout most of church history, but do they portray seven ages? And some people would say Ephesus is the first church age and then Smyrna and and Thyatira and so forth. Um, No, I don't don't think so. Do do you hold to that position? No, No. the reason I ask that is a a lot of people who are futurists do hold to that. In fact, in the last 150 years, You've seen all kinds of charts come out on this stuff. C.I. Schofield, who perpetrated this very, you know, doctrine, you know, a lot in his footnotes, had charts. I just was curious. Yeah. Um, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Notice how he's described. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Man, think about, you think about that. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
but he isn't doing that right now. When John received the revelation, unless we were, unless we would say, you know, kind of mystically, that Jesus from heaven is ruling the kings of the earth, uh, but that just doesn't cut it. You know, how how can we say that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth? He will be. He will rule the kings of the earth. As we read from Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, he will decimate the kings of the earth. When Antichrist you know, um, gathers all of the armies of man under their kings um, and Christ comes back, mm-hmm. <coughs> Through these portrayals of the triune God, we understand that this revelation is given from the divine world view. The Father's unrivaled eternality, the Spirit's sanctified perfection, the Son's earned supremacy over the earth. Not only does the Son have the right pedigree, but he suffered and died for all people. He has earned the right to rule both by what he's done and by his pedigree being the the, uh, son of David, the son of Abraham. Although God has allowed Satan to advance his rebellion by corrupting man on earth, he has not surrendered his right to worship and obedience. Nor is man free from accountability to God. Um, Just because someone says that he or she thinks God does not exist, that does not relinquish that person's responsibility to believe, to love, to give allegiance, to give obedience to God. Just because he or she denies God doesn't mean that God's going to say, okay, well, you deny me, so you're not accountable to me. God won't do that. He is righteous, and he is holy, and he is true. Uh, He's true to himself. In actuality, the first advent of Christ with his incarnation as the descendant of Abraham and heir of David, his service to mankind through miraculous healing and corrective teaching, the fulfillment of his mission as the suffering servant through substitutionary atonement, followed by bodily resurrection and ascension. So in actuality, the first advent of Christ positioned and prepared him for the triumphant second advent, as the king of kings and world rulers. Brian has a question. Yes, Brian? <coughs> I think we, we know very definitely that uh, ruling over the kings, being the king of kings, mm. rule the kings is, is future. Yes. I mean, if you look at yes. the king of the United States, he's not being ruled. Yes, yes. By anybody. Right. Anybody. Yes, exactly. <coughs> Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished redemption for mankind, and this fact qualifies him to also dispense judgment. um, 
I am. Whoop. Go ahead. Okay. At Go the ahead. same time, we do not see God ruling the kings, but uh, David tells us in the Psalms that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it like a river, whichever way he wants it to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see the river meandering it seems all natural processes to us that the river changes its course and it may seem to us natural processes mm -hmm. that a decision is made by a king one way or another because of his bent because of his advisors or whatever yes. but David is telling us in the Old Testament long before this prophecy that God has control over the kings of the earth way back then which would include now and examples are given in the prophets of Cyrus and others yes. doing exactly what God said hundreds of years before they would do. So. And he raises up kings and he brings down. Yes. So God is behind the scene doing mm -hmm. what he's doing, and we don't see why God is doing what he's doing today. How can that be in God's will, what we see happening? So, so both so, truths, I think, we have to hold. Mm -hmm. Just like many other truths in the Bible, we have to hold both truths in our mind, which is a finite mind that cannot understand God. But we're told this is true, we're told that is true, so we believe that that is true. And it states, my, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> he wasn't saved. And so we see that, don't we? Uh, the people of Israel are in exile, but does God... Uh, not have a witness during those years of exile? Most definitely. We've got the Nebuchadnezzar that is humbled. Um, we have Cyrus who uh, initiates the, the return of the people back to the land. Oh, most definitely. And that's, that's the great intrigue with these exilic prophets is that, and Daniel being um, one of them, to see that God doesn't uh, stop his witness about his greatness. Uh, how many times did God uh, work marvelously in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? Wow. Well, we've got you know, Daniel and his, his three friends with their diet. We've got the three, um, the three friends in the fiery furnace. Uh, we've got Daniel at the lion's den. Now, that's a different king. That's not Nebuchadnezzar. But yes, time after time after time. Interesting stuff. He okay. hardened Pharaoh. Excuse me? He hardened Pharaoh. Yes, he hardened Pharaoh, yes. <coughs> and perhaps it's because it, it talks about in scripture, it, as in the days of Noah, this has to continue to get worse and worse, not better and better. Yes. And then ultimately the Lord will say, enough is enough, and we'll meet yes. him in the air. Yes. So the Lord Jesus accomplished redemption for mankind, and this fact qualifies him to also dispense judgment. The revelation to John depicts all of this wonderfully. Christ is the head of the church, the sacrifice, the priest, the redeemer of mankind. He's the shepherd of the martyred saints. He's the conqueror of the rebel forces. He's the ruler of the nations. So the mission given to Christ will be accomplished through two advents to earth. In the first, he came as king, offering the kingdom, but was officially rejected. So then he transitioned to the role of the suffering servant. In the second advent, he will come as conqueror and returning king for the Jews first, 
than for all peoples. Does that make sense? Whoop, excuse me. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Let's talk about some more applications. Do you relate to Jesus Christ as a repenting sinner, seeking mercy from divine wrath and deliverance from the mastery of sin? Did, did you notice Spurgeon's words on the whiteboard this morning? He who hugs his chains hates the presence of a free man. And there are people around us who live around us who are hugging the chains of their own individual lives, of being their own person. And they may well be uh, addicted to something in their life, and they want, they want the addiction. They want to hug their chains. But in the presence of a free man, they've got great consternation. Let's think about that in terms of specifically not addictions, but of sins. The person who hugs his sin has a hard time with a person that's free from sin. Why do non-Christians detest our presence? Why do they have trouble with us? Because there's a ball and chain to their soul. And they, they recognize in us that we don't have that. And we're free of that. Uh, hmm, interesting words, Spurgeon. Okay, so do we relate to Christ this way? Our uh, family business is addressing the question of a vision statement. And my, our, our parents, there are five of us boys, our parents had a vision statement that they, they spoke to us about doing. And the, the two items that mom and dad said to us is that uh, sons, we're helping you to be part of this business. We're making you part of this business. So that if God calls you into ministry, knowing that many ministries are not able uh, to adequately remunerate the minister, this will supplement your income. Secondly, we're hoping that the income you get from the business will allow the wives to stay home and raise the children. Very clear. Uh, Mom and dad prayed for us boys. Uh, four of us have followed the Lord rather closely. One is more nominal. And he's struggling as we talk about a vision statement. Have you been forgiven, covered with the shed blood of Christ, and born anew by the Holy Spirit? If so, you have acted in accord with Christ's first advent. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now let's talk about the second advent. Are you prepared for the second? Is your allegiance to Jesus Christ alone? Or do you entertain rival allegiances? Are your values, or rather, are his values your values? Is his truth your truth? Are his followers your friends? Are his enemies your enemies? We're told to love our enemies. But we are also told 
if necessary, to make the choice to follow Christ rather than stay in fellowship with our family members. So in Psalm 139, Yes. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I see it. This is that psalm where David reflects on God knowing every part of his being from birth on, his thoughts, his actions, and all of that. And at the end, and sometimes we don't read the end of this psalm, and we, we focus on this marvelous, intricate knowledge that God has of us. And we just glory in the fact that God knows so much about us and he cares so much for us. But how does the psalm end? What does David say? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. God knows me so well. Get out of here, you guys. I'm with God. That's a paraphrase. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, check my allegiance. See if there is any grievous way in me. Do I have competing allegiances? See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then, of course, Luke 14, uh, where Christ says, um, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross and unless you're willing to set aside a wife or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter or parents. In every sermon I think I've ever heard on Psalm 139, uh, they go through in detail on everything, including the last verse, search me and know me. Mm -hmm. But they always, now even Chuck did this last, he left out, Mm -hmm. do I not hate them? I hate them with perfect hatred. It's as though, well, you're supposed to love your enemies, and I can't explain this. Mm -hmm. It's always it's always been left out. Yeah, and and probably in uh, with well meaning. I I I I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think we would impugn people uh, because they they chose to leave out some difficult verses. But we do want to take the whole psalm in in stride here, and it seems as though. That's why David recounts everything else in the in the psalm. He gets to the point where he says, you know, there's a dividing mark here. There's, as I've, as we've talked about, there's a watershed moment in your life and in my life, and we we either <laughs> fall to one side or the. I thought about bringing marbles and and building a fulcrum and, <clears throat> and just watching the marbles fall to one side or the other. You know, everybody's marble is going to fall one way or the other, right? Or you lose them. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll do that too. Okay. The water, the water doesn't flow uphill to the other side of the mountain. So, and again, 
we're, we're told to love our, our enemies. We're told to pray for those that despitefully use us. So, but in our allegiance, where is our allegiance? How do we treat people that mistreat us? We treat them well. We treat them with respect, even though they don't treat us with respect. Um, but, but this passage is talking about our allegiance. This, this passage is talking about our fellowship. Okay. Six to?